All right, we're back again from beyond the podcast grave. Really, at this point, like a fully formed podcast zombie rising up and terrorizing your village. I uh, I'm back. This is Hunter Keegan with a Down Home Fear episode for you, episode 24. That means that there's almost a full day worth of DHF content out there at this time for you to listen back through at your leisure. I recognize that Down Home Fear has covered land, air, and sea, but what about extraterrestrial beings? Unidentified flying objects call to mind images of science fiction. Futuristic craft descending from the cosmos and abducting cattle, or leaving crop circles and inciting panic. And as panic seeps throughout the world's collective consciousness in this, the late winter of 2020, the year of our Lord, we do ask ourselves, is this the end of days? And if it is the end of days, what will happen after humanity is extinguished? Will the alien overlords return, build new pyramids, and create a new race of sentient beings to replace us? Anyhow, UFOs, they're not just some H.G. Wells shit. Unidentified flying objects are, well, unidentified. That means that any aerial phenomena that are observed and yet have no clear explanation qualify as UFOs, regardless of if it's a man-made object or if it's potentially something that has come out from outer space and has uh, presented itself to us. In the United States, many of us, like myself, assume that these incidents are primarily related to military technology. Unmanned drones or weapons being tested in remote areas in the desert or other vacant venues. But this first story may change our whole perspective on UFOs. What happens when the military itself reports UFOs? What exactly are the limits of our understanding? Part 1. This is the bizarre story of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, and a series of previously classified incidents and that are really still currently classified that occurred between 2014 and 2015, somewhere off the east coast of the United States, between Virginia and Florida. After the last episode, episode 23, Ghost Ships of the South, we already know that the east coast of the United States is treacherous. The graveyard of the Atlantic is home to thousands of sunken vessels and lost souls off of the east coast of the United States. But what if a ship was so goddamn large that it carves through the ocean like a fucking floating city and is so state-of-the-art that it can remain fully operational for indefinite periods of time? Enter the Nimitz-class aircraft carriers operated by the U.S. Navy. The USS Theodore Roosevelt is a Nimitz-class nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that is actually more accurately referred to as a supercarrier. It was launched in the mid-1980s and has proceeded to travel throughout the world's open oceans to provide strategic military support for a wide variety of global conflicts. So these are the largest and most advanced 
class of aircraft carrier currently in service. No other country in the world operates this type of ship. The unit cost when adjusted for inflation is about $8.5 billion. They have a crew of over 6,000. They stretch nearly a quarter mile long and are equipped with numerous advanced radar and weapon detection systems, unlike any other vessel currently in service. It can also house around 80 of the United States' most advanced warplanes. They're constructed... Um, actually, so we have 10 of them. <laughs> yeah. So we, have, we currently have 10 of these, and um, they're uh, going to be replaced in the somewhat near future by a new class of even more insane aircraft carrier called the uh, Ford class. Um, but right now, these 10 are really... I mean, they're the most advanced you know, vessel of this nature in the world by a long shot. Like there, there's really nothing else that can really match what they do right now. Each of the Nimitz class carriers has been constructed in Newport News, Virginia. And I've actually seen a couple of these while driving back and forth between where I live in Virginia and, uh, you know, driving to North Carolina back and forth and the size of them really cannot be overstated they are self-sustained by nuclear power so they can actually um their operating lifespan is indefinite like it's crazy like they literally um until the crew runs out of food they can literally just operate in the open ocean potentially forever um if they're not you know damaged or something by a uh, foreign object all of this is to say that for a vessel of this size and sophistication, it's fairly unusual for something to enter their vicinity and not be able to be identified. Therefore, beginning on June 2nd, 2014 through March 10th, 2015, why was the USS Theodore Roosevelt observing UFOs on almost a daily basis? While conducting routine training exercises off the east coast of the United States, pilots flying out of the USS Theodore Roosevelt began reporting that they were detecting unidentified flying objects on their radars. The objects were described as appearing as a sphere that contained a cube, and they traveled in fleets, and at one point they came so close to the aircraft they were taking off from the aircraft carrier that they nearly collided with the planes and this prompted reviews of um, aerial safety and operating procedures that were um, you know in instituted by the US Navy so it was a big problem and uh, there were a lot of eyes on it at that time when pilots began reporting these sightings to their superiors they described them as having no visible engine or exhaust fumes but that they could travel at hypersonic speeds meaning that they can exceed speeds of 3800 miles per hour and quickly increase altitude at rates that would actually kill a human pilot because it would put so much uh, g-force on the craft that it would actually be lethal to uh, a human so as one pilot radioed in while recording one of these objects on infrared video, he said initially, and this is, this is a direct quote, that's a fucking drone, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. <laughs> Sounds like something I would say. But uh, in that particular video, it was recorded off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. 
and the objects were actually flying against high-speed winds and they were moving so quickly that initially the pilot um, in this video actually has difficulty keeping the fleet of objects in the frame of the camera. So this infrared video shows a tight cluster of what were initially presumed to be drones rotating in unusual ways as they speed over the ocean. So essentially with the trajectory that these objects are flying in, they are rotating and maneuvering around and they're making these weird turns and stuff that have never been observed before. And as far as we know, we don't have the type of technology that could really even make this possible. And in this video, you know, the pilots are talking to each other over their radios and the pilot who's filming this phenomenon uh, is talking to the rest of the squadron and he's incredulous. He's almost giddy sounding and he and his wingmen are exclaiming about the bizarre and mysterious nature of the UFO. However, as the pilots soon learned, the U.S. military has no declassified drones in service that can perform such feats of aerial maneuvering and stealthy operation. And the sightings continued regularly for nearly a year. They were saying almost every day uh, pilots would see something like this or the, um, the personnel on the ship would see something like this. And it was, it was crazy. And they genuinely really did not know what it was. Meanwhile, the Department of Defense was insisting that the objects were not extraterrestrial, but they also wouldn't say exactly what they were or why pilots kept spotting them. In 2015, a spokesman for the Navy confirmed that there were a number of different reports and stated, we don't know who is doing this. We don't have enough data to track this. So the fleet is to provide updated guidance on reporting procedures for suspected intrusions into our airspace. A highly classified congressional committee was also assembled to arrange a formal inquiry into this issue. But again, this was as recent as 2015, so whatever they found out from the Department of Defense officially is still classified. Other military experts, as in experts who were actually serving in the armed forces and were true subject matter experts, not like the drunk guy at parties who rattles off conspiracy theories to you, they were saying that as they were analyzing the events, they determined that no known aircraft could maneuver in the way that these UFOs were demonstrating. Um, and again, you know, the sudden rates of acceleration were so powerful that they would kill a human pilot. They made seemingly instantaneous turns while operating at hypersonic speeds, and they were sometimes observed for over 10 hours at a time and indicated no signs of running out of fuel or requiring other maintenance. The phenomena were a source of intrigue and wild speculation as the military declassified certain elements of the reports. So they put out a little bit of information and it raised a lot of questions. You know, was this a type of interference from a foreign adversary, <laughs> Russia, or a top secret project that was known only to the most inner circles of the Department of Defense? Or maybe were they actually craft that had descended from outer space? The official conclusion of what was causing these events is still unclear. Maybe in 25 years or so, the congressional reports and data collected by the Navy will be fully declassified and we can learn the truth behind them. But one thing is clear, 
the story dropped out of news cycles fairly abruptly and to the general public is one of the lesser known modern incidents of UFO sightings. In fact, when I was researching this story, I was surprised to come across relatively few mainstream reports of this series of events. The primary source for this segment was an article published by the New York Times just last year. The article contained many interesting details, but again, no answers as to what the objects were or why they had been sighted at all. Like I said earlier, I am a firm believer that clandestine technologies are tested by the U.S. government all the time, to the extent that even fighter pilots training in the same airspace are unaware of what they are. It's a known fact that the military conducts top-secret projects, and many years pass before these projects become known to the public. One of my favorite examples of this, personally, is the SR-71 Blackbird, which was an extremely advanced reconnaissance aircraft developed by the CIA in conjunction with Lockheed Martin and that entered service in the 1960s. The plane itself is now iconic, a long, narrow, black aircraft that remains futuristic-looking even 60 years later. Although the SR-71 is now so iconic that it's featured on license plates and keychains and t-shirts, for many years it remains a phantom craft, undetectable on most radar systems of the day, able to operate at speeds that were thought, at the time, to have been impossible. If you've listened to this show for a while, you already know that it's not really a secret that I have a strong interest in military history and technology. From the story that we did on lost nukes way back in episode 8, I've periodically discussed declassified sketchy shit that the DoD has gotten itself into over the years. Cutting-edge military technology and UFO sightings obviously go hand-in-hand. People freak out when they witness something that was previously considered technologically impossible. But sometimes the notion of impossibility really just arises from misinformation. So let's turn to one small community's reaction to a mysterious event that occurred right in their own town. Part two. It seems like we talk about Texas a lot in this show. I feel like it's almost every other episode that we have a story from Texas. Off the top of my head, I believe Texas and Florida are the most notorious and prolific states where we've found good stories for DHF. As a point of reference for our international listeners, Texas is massive. Look at an overlay of the state of Texas over the continent of Europe, and it covers almost all of Central Europe. It's really fucking huge. And I mention this because Texas has a radically different cultural vibe and geographic environment, depending on where you are within that state of the country. That is to say that Central Texas has a very different vibe than Southeastern Texas, and Northwestern Texas has a very different feel than Southern Texas, etc., etc., Let's talk about Stephenville, Texas in the year 2008, a smallish town with a population of around 17,000 that's about 100 miles southwest of Dallas, so we're talking basically north-central Texas. 
It's very, very flat and grassy. They, not unlike a number of other Texan communities, call themselves the cowboy capital of the world. It's 87% white, considered suburban, and home to a small university that I'd never heard of and a beauty school that I definitely had never heard of. After some cursory Google research, I saw that their official town website has a page that says, Apply for Water. And I'm not sure if that has to do with coronavirus or if that's just their standard operating procedure. But regardless, I think it speaks volumes about this town. I was trying to immerse myself in the Stephenville community by randomly pulling up shops and neighborhoods on Google Street View. And quickly, I realized that every street looks exactly the same and there's a Walmart Supercenter, so it's like one of those towns. And on the night of January 8th, 2008, in this shithole, I'm joking, there was a mass sighting of unidentified flying objects, UFOs, and the citizens of Stephenville reported that a massive object appearing to be anywhere from as large as a football field to half a mile long was drifting about 3,000 feet above their little town. It was described as being similar to the Phoenix Lights, which is a reference to a well-known mass UFO sighting in Phoenix, Arizona that occurred in the late 1990s. And that was when a number of massive triangular objects accented by bright white lights drifted above the city of Phoenix and caused a mass panic. Later, this phenomenon was explained by the Air Force as having been a series of signal flares dropped by a squadron of fighter planes that were on a training mission in the area. But this object was accented by glowing red lights, and an Air Force veteran who was in Stephenville at the time of the incident described them as the brightest red lights he'd ever seen in the sky. And he also estimated that they were at an altitude of approximately 2,000 feet, traveling at around 60 miles per hour, which, like how, like, how could you possibly have guessed that with the naked eye from the ground in the middle of the night with no other point of reference in the sky? If someone can explain to me how he was able to gauge the speed and trajectory of this object, please email me at hunterhkeegan at gmail.com because I would be genuinely curious to know. But the Air Force veteran's sighting was corroborated by a local police officer 15 miles away, who also said that he observed orange or yellow lights drifting above Stephenville. The magazine Popular Mechanics later published an article where the police officer explained his sighting, and whoever wrote the article included an unnecessary and awkward amount of detail explaining that C Constable Leroy Gayton finished eating a slice of his wife's birthday cake, then headed out to his patrol car to get his wallet so his family could watch Mr. Bean on pay-per-view, and that's when he saw the lights. Like, cool dude, alright, that's important to know, I guess. Anyhow, Leroy went on to double down on the insanity of this situation by describing them as bright, like German auto headlights, and they shot off like a blazing school of fish when it's frightened. Texas. More than 200 people would go forth and claim they also witnessed the lights. Initially, the Air Force denied that they had been conducting any exercises in the area on that night, but 12 days later, January 23, 2008, the Air Force released a statement explaining that a squadron of F-16 fighter jets had indeed been conducting a routine training mission in the airspace above Stephenville. However, many people did not buy this explanation. 
That same reporter from Popular Mechanics asked, why the flip-flop? Because apparently it's unfathomable that the military wouldn't openly disclose every training mission that they conduct. And with that, the story dropped out of local news outlets within just a couple of weeks. But so-called UFO hunters went on to continue interviewing the residents in the Stephenville area. One man said that a couple of weeks before the mass sighting, he had actually observed a similar UFO through the scope on his rifle while he was hunting deer in an area near Stephenville. That same man also amplified the Texasness of this story by clarifying that its size was about the same as the grain elevator that he used to work at. That's an honest work. To date, to date, no further sightings have been reported. And in fact, many people have admitted that the town of Stephenville is in very close proximity to Air Force bases where training missions are indeed routinely conducted. Another Stephenville resident was quoted as saying, I don't understand why they wouldn't come out and tell the truth. If they had the capability of putting on a show like that, all they have to do is tell us. We'd get out on our lawn chairs and watch which I fully agree with, but also that's exactly what the Air Force is trying to avoid. Sharing these stories has been a real pleasure today. Are you a new DHF listener? I was actually pretty surprised at how many streams and downloads we got from that unexpected episode that I released a couple of weeks ago. Down Home Fear has gone through a couple of different incarnations at this point. The claim to fame remains our series on Casey Anthony and the death of her daughter, Kaylee. Um, And that series was released a couple of years ago. I heard it through the grapevine that Dan Harmon, who is the creator of Rick and Morty and the television show Community, as well as his own podcast, which is much more successful than this one, Um, It turned out he was actually following that as it was being released, and that really blew my mind. So that was very cool. Um, If you're a cool guy who makes dope art, please let me know, because I would love to know that you're also listening to this shit. You may have noticed that each of these episodes has an original soundtrack that's created by the band Last Known Images. The album Nocturnal is available now via all streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, it's up on there. If you're not familiar with ambient music, check out Last Known Images, see if you hate it or not, and proceed from there. Thanks for listening, tell your friends, get those numbers back up, I'd love to see more people streaming this, it's always really cool to know that people are listening. And we do have nearly 70,000 downloads from the original run, which is really cool, so You know, keep it going, dive back into those early episodes and familiarize yourself with this indie cult podcast if you haven't listened to it before. Or if you're a returning listener, go ahead and dig back through them. Some of them are kind of interesting. I was listening through them myself a couple of weeks ago and I had forgotten a lot about those initial stories that I did and it was pretty cool to go back through and listen to them. We've we've definitely done a, a really wide range of stories at this point, and it's a nice diversity of different uh, true stories and also just strange happenings from the American South. Thank you so much.